Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is June the 17th, 2015. This is episode 1592 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got Ben Hewitt coming on in just a bit. Who is Ben Hewitt? He is the author of a new book called The Nourishing Homestead. He's also a homeschooler slash unschooler with his kiddos. We've had him on the show before about that. Today we're going to talk about growing nutrient-dense food and his new book. Before I bring Ben on, though, we're going to go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time, and we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that, and they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, hey Jack, we love what you're doing, we want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show, and I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what. Just just stick with us, and when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later. It was February of the next year that we launched the MSB, and we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original survival podcast sponsor, because they were first and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping. 
uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original Survival Podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. With that knocked out, let me remind you guys about the Members Support Brigade. If you consider becoming a member of my Support Brigade, if you already are, if you have been for a long time or just a brand new member, let me first say thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, it is how we keep this show going. It is our primary source of income. We actually take very little money from our sponsors. Uh, we put most of, uh, of what we do out because we're able to make a living with the Members Support Brigade. So thank you. All of you have supported me over the years. If you're not yet a member and you're thinking, is it worth it? Well, just to be blunt, is the show worth 20 cents an episode? That's how I've always pitched it. Listen to the show, you think it's worth 20 cents an episode, consider joining. But I'd like to talk to you about the ROI that I, that I have for you guys. I, I work really hard on that, and I want to make sure that you guys realize that I don't want people joining the MSB just to give us money. What I actually want you to do is use the products and services we get you discounts on. I, I'm excited. Right now I'm negotiating a deal with a very large seed producer. Um, I have some stuff for you right now with you know for buying your packets of seeds for your gardens and all, but for you large producers, people in a microgreens business and things like that, I'm about to get you a discount on the, the, the kind of you know seed provider that sells seed by the pound. Um, there's over 60 vendors right now that I have discounts for you. I'm in negotiations with several others right now to try to get you guys discounts. I try to get you discounts on the things that you buy anyway. I've got several benefits to pay for your membership by themselves. And, of course, I do additional discounts for military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and all first responders, to thank you for your service, you just email me before, not after you join, with TSPC service discount on the subject line. Tell me about your service, and I'll get back to you with that discount. But do consider joining if you haven't. I want you to think about something, too. You're making an investment in, in a proven product at this point. Those of you that like joined the MSV when I was like a half a year into this, when I first opened it, thank you so much, because, man, you guys are taking a gamble. I, I just wanted to share with you guys today what's going to happen on Saturday. Saturday this week will officially be Happy Birthday TSP seven years, uh, seven years of the Survival Podcast. So if you consider joining and you're like, well, is this guy going to be around? Yeah, I'm going to be around. Somebody just asked me at the uh, the summer event up at Perma Ethos, how much longer are you going to do this? I said, I don't know the rest of my life. I you know I really don't know, but ten years is a, not even a not even an afterthought at this point. It's going to take put me in the ground. To get me to not do this. I'm going in the ground, man. I want to tell you guys about something that happened to, to myself and Dorothy yesterday that for a minute I thought I might be. Um, actually, I was never really afraid that we might end up dead. I was afraid we were going to end up very seriously injured. Uh, I put a video out on on, on what happened, but uh, Dorothy had our Toyota 4Runner down at Toyota for our, our service, our 15,000-mile service. And uh, so we had to go pick it up. So we left in our blue Dodge pickup truck. And we're taking this back road to get down Toyota because the main road we take has been blocked for seven months. And we come up over this hill, and a guy comes flying around the turn. 
Um, it was a little bit rainy. He said he slid. I don't think he slid. I think he was just not paying attention, and he froze up when he realized what was about to happen. He was probably traveling about 55 miles an hour, and he was coming straight at us. There was nowhere for me to go. Uh, I didn't have time to completely get off the road. I decelerated as much as I could, got over, and, and, and as I was coming over, I realized if I turned much more, I was going to give him my door. And in that split second, I thought to myself, I'm not giving this guy my door. I'm not getting a, a, taking a full-on hit. So uh, basically I stopped, gave him the opportunity to veer in any shape or form, which he never did, or slow down in any way. Um, and our, we hit, uh, almost, hit, he was almost head-on on his half of the vehicle. He took the corner of my vehicle into the tire, blew the tire completely off the axle of my vehicle. The Dodges probably know more. For those that want to see the video that I shot after the fact, um, it uh, it's available, and I'll put a link in today's show notes to it, but it's already been up on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, the reason I bring that up is it's important that we keep our heads in these situations. Um, maybe I should do a whole show one day on you know, dealing with an accident. But I want to kind of tell you the basics of what, what, what I did in this situation. Um, this was a heavily traveled road, and the vehicles at this point were almost completely blocking the road. There was enough for one vehicle at a time to slide by um, on the on the eastbound side of the road, on the side that the, the individual hit me from. Um, and it's also wet, and people fly on this road, just like this idiot did. And so the very first thing I did was try to, to move my vehicle. I hadn't gotten out yet, didn't realize it was missing a front tire. So once I realized the vehicle wouldn't move, I made sure I was okay, made sure Dorothy was okay, because I expected glass and blood when I saw this guy coming in. Uh, that's how hot he was coming in and how direct on us he was coming in. I realized she was okay. I was okay. We're sore. We're achy. We're pissed, but we're okay. I couldn't open my door, so she could open hers. I got us both out of the vehicle. I had her call 911, and it was, as she was calling 911, I was moving her away from the vehicle. The guy was you know, out holding his chest and I think acting a little bit because he was scared shitless. I'll explain why later. Um, the girl was walking around dazed and confused. I think she was stoned, honestly. I think she was. She looked like a meth head. And uh, so I got them the hell away from the vehicle. This is the first thing you do. You get people away from the crash site. So that when somebody comes in and careens into the existing vehicle, they don't drive it into you and kill you. There's, I, I, I would say there's probably as many people killed after the accident as during the accident because they don't get the hell away from the vehicle. So I got everybody clear of the vehicle. A couple citizens stopped. Uh, once I knew Dorothy was okay, I had her call AAA. They never showed up, by the way. When the police finally got there, they got us a, a wrecker anyway. Um, and uh, I had her taking care of that. I had the, the, the two idiots uh, over and away from the wreck. And then I got my shit together, and I went and I directed traffic with the, the, the other citizen that stopped. We directed traffic for about an hour, I would say, before EMS got there. That's how long we waited and because uh, I guess we were in the middle of nowhere, and uh, they finally got there. We stood down. I saw to my wife. It was another two hours before our vehicle was towed. Um, uh, sheriff came. He said, "I don't work accidents." Okay, so he held scene until the trooper came. State trooper came. He did the accident report, wrote it up that we were on. A, you know, basically we were in the right. That the guy came into our lane was driving too fast for conditions, etc. And um, dug through the guy's truck because the, the guy and this girl, when EMS got there, they basically flew into the ambulance. Like they did not want to be there when the cops got there. <laughs> Again, I'll get to that. Um, and went to the hospital. I don't think either one of them were really hurt that bad. 
Um, he might have been pretty sore in the chest because he, he took a smack. Um, I almost took the 350, the F-350 Ford. He would have been hurt a lot worse if he would have ran into that, and I would have lost my Ford, which I would be more upset about. So um, I'm glad I didn't in multiple ways. So the cop goes through the truck, doesn't find any insurance, goes to the hospital, interviews both of them, cites the guy out for three citations, and uh, calls me and says, I'm sorry to tell you this, Mr. Spirico, but the guy has no insurance. So I'm hit by a guy with no insurance. Fortunately, I have full coverage on the truck, so my insurance company will cover it. But my blue Dodge is done. Um, it, it's just not going to happen. What is amazing to me is if you keep your head in these situations, in even split seconds, you have time to think. From the time that I identified the threat, here's the guy coming at me, to the impact, I would say it was less than a second and a half. That's about how much time I had to react. And in that second and a half, I thought, he's not going to veer off decelerate, move over, give as much as you can. You can't go any further. You're going to pile into that fence and, and possibly get more hurt. If you turn more, he's going to take you in the door. This is all you can do. Don't, don't do anything else. Maybe he'll veer. Smack! And that all happened in a second and a half or less. Um, I don't think you train for that or anything. I think it's just a matter of the human mind has that capability, and if you are open to that, you, you get those things. I feel like I did the best I could with a bad situation. And then, since I wasn't hurt, took control so that it didn't get worse. So maybe I'll do a show one day on just on how to deal with accidents, etc. I took video. I took pictures. I made sure that I gave a clear, concise story to law enforcement, spoke in law enforcement lingo, those types of things. Those make things go much better. Anyway, I just wanted to update you guys on that. We've heard from plenty of people asking if we're okay. I appreciate the sentiment, but if, if you have video of people walking around after their accident filming, the, then they're okay, or they wouldn't be out there filming the accident. So we're all fine. My neck is sore as shit. My leg is sore as shit. I'll get over it. Uh, I think Dorothy took a little bit more of a, a bruising in the chest from the seatbelt. Um, because she didn't have a steering wheel to hang on to. Fortunately, since I took a side, uh, the, the corner glance, instead of dead head on, the airbags didn't deploy because we were probably been both at the, uh, at the ER with, uh, burnt and, and, and bruised faces from the airbag deployment. Sometimes I wonder if those things maybe are a little more trouble than they're worth, but at other times I know they save lives. Anyway, with that wrapped up, um, let's real quick before I bring Ben on. Talk about the year that was the episode, 1592. I have the Bonnie Earl of Moray and signing of a blank form. I also have the Japanese invasion of Korea, round one. And the mother of all heists and the difficulty of doing the right thing. That's the one I'm going to read. During this period, Portugal is a province of Spain, so in the war between England and Spain, the English have been attacking the Portuguese spice trade. This year is a super ship. This year the super ship Marquis... Madre de Dios, meaning Mother of God. Madre de Dios, okay. Madre, that's not how I spell Dios. D-I-O-S. Anyway, Madre de Dios, meaning the Mother of God, is captured by the English Navy. That's because it's Portuguese, Jack. Anyway, back to it. By the English Navy and brought into the port of Dartmouth as a prize. The letter of Mark from Queen Elizabeth I She is to get a percentage of the cargo of any ship captured from Spain or Portugal. But before she can collect, the English sailors walk off with the vast majority of the cargo. She sends Sir Walter Raleigh to protect her interests, but by the time he arrives, 72% of the ship's cargo is gone, gone, gone. My take by Alex Shrug that puts these together for us at tspwiki.com. 
FYI, the ship's hold was massive. It was full. I can imagine what sailors were saying to themselves. The queen will never miss a little bit. The value of the original cargo was estimated at half a million pounds sterling, which was half the annual budget of Great Britain at the time. I don't know why the English sailors looted the ship so thoroughly. Maybe it was compensation for the risk they took, since half the sailors on average would die on such a voyage. But smaller ships had made the same journey without looting at the end. It must have been better, been the utter size of that single treasure and watching man after man succumbing to temptation. The most difficult thing in the world is doing the right thing when everyone around you is doing the wrong thing, even your own friends. I got a lot on this one. First of all, first of all, I'd like to point something out. The queen was to get her percentage. If the men took 72% of the cargo and all that was left was then what? 28%. I think that's enough. Now, I'm sure they took the better stuff, but I think they left her enough. So tough, tough crap, right? The next thing is, you know, it's interesting that Alex puts it that way. That you do the right thing when everyone around you is doing the wrong thing. But all of these men were doing the wrong thing every day. They were stealing. These were legalized pirates. That's what this was. This was legalized piracy. The queen gives you a letter of mark that gives you permission to go out and, and take enemy ships and stuff from, from people who are not military, right? This was like a military operation attacking civilian cargo and seizing their ship and taking their shit and killing people to do it. So you basically have professional thieves and killers sent out to steal, and then you're surprised when they steal from you? <laughs> okay, next, Alex is right when he says, you know, it's hard to do the right thing when you see everybody doing the wrong thing. So with the sheer size of everything and everybody grabbing some shit and hauling ass, you're like, hell, I might as well do it too. And you know something about getting away with a crime. The more people that do it, the less likely you as an individual are to be accountable for it. So the captain, the first mate, and stuff like that may swing from the gallows for this, but I'm just a lowly crewman. 80% of this stuff's going to disappear. I don't know what happened to it. Next... Thieves tend to be more bold when the heist is sufficient to provide for them for a long enough period of time to go find somewhere else to be. So if I steal from the queen, who can have me disemboweled and other horrible things for doing it, and it's enough to provide for me for a week, um, I probably can't go far enough to make it worth stealing. But if it can provide for me for a year or two, and I can be off somewhere in the new world, or I can be now working for her enemy or whatever, and I can get enough of a return for the risk, I'm more likely to do it if I'm a thief. Then there is mob mentality. And that's what we see in these riots. People that would never smash a car window in normally. When 400 other people are doing it, all of a sudden are doing it. I've seen it happen on small and large scales. I've seen... People get in fights, and then all of a sudden, ten people are getting up on one guy um, because this 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 mob mentality kicks in. You know, um, I've and I've seen I've seen white scale rioting in, in Panama City, Panama. Uh, I saw student protests turn into riots that make look make what we do here with like Ferguson, et cetera, look like freaking Disneyland. The difference is the reprisal from authority in Panama was immediate and harsh. Uh, way, there was no, let's give them room. No, it doesn't work that way. You want to chant, you want to yell, you want to scream, you want to bounce up and down, whatever, fine. Uh, in the nation of Panama, anyway, you start turning cars over, they start turning heads over really fast. So while they were extremely violent, they were very, 
very short-lived. While I'm not for the violence of the state, I think in those particular situations where people start damaging the property of other citizens, uh, to express anger with the state, when the citizen's not the state, uh, maybe a quicker, swifter reprisal is necessary. Oh, by the way, before we pass this, it also makes, that makes me think of uh, the Waco shootings. And all of this pablum crap, Why are they reporting Waco so much differently than they did the Baltimore riots? Okay, because you want some reasons? You want some reasons? Well, it's because they were white. No, you want some reasons? Because you know, like the, the media loves bikers. Come on. Here's why. The whole thing was over in a couple minutes. Everybody that was involved was either shot or went to jail. And it was over in a couple of minutes. And everybody that was shot, everybody that was involved was either shot or arrested and went to jail. And a whole bunch of people that weren't involved were arrested and went to jail. Oh, and it was over in a couple minutes. It's not still going on. Things aren't being burned. Nobody was given room for destruction. It was covered differently because it ain't the same damn thing, morons. Anyway, we have a much happier, happier, happier show to do today. I, it's probably a little stress coming out of me, guys. I'm sorry because I am pissed over losing old blue, and I am sore, and sore makes me irritated and uh, my remodeling and construction still going on in the background and that was supposed to be done two weeks ago and it's not going to be done until next week so I'm a little bit on edge but I actually am really looking forward to this interview I think it'll put me in a better mood uh, we might as well talk about homesteading because we're getting six inches of rain today the whole property's underwater the swale sills are flowing now And I'm not going to be able to get anything done outside anyway. And I got to go back to Old Blue and pick some stuff up. So talking about homesteading is the best I'm going to do today, other than feeding the ducks, I guess, and uh, talking to the ducks. With that in mind, let's bring Mr. Ben Hewitt on the line. We are going to talk about his new book, The Nourishing Homestead. We're going to talk about growing nutrient-dense food and a lot of other really great stuff. And with that, hey, Ben, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me again, Jack. Um, before we get into our subject today, which I've already mentioned to the audience, it's about growing nutrient-dense food and uh, how you do that on your homestead. Can you give people kind of a little bit of your background? Like most people, when they're like nine years old, aren't thinking, I'm going to grow up and be a homesteader, and I'm going to homeschool my kids, and I'm going to do nutrient-dense food. Like there's some way they end up in this type of a lifestyle. So can you kind of just bring the audience up to speed? Who the heck is this Ben Hewitt dude, and how do you end up here, and why should we listen to him? Well, I don't know why you should listen to me, so I, you know, I, I can't answer that one, but I, I can, I can maybe help you with the rest of it. I mean, I, I actually did grow up in northern Vermont, um, and my parents were were pretty hardcore back to the landers. Um, I was born into a two room cabin with no running water, uh, no electricity, you know, the whole nine yards, um, and that lasted until I was, I guess, I was six or maybe seven, um, and they sort of. <laughs> I think they sort of capitulated. They got a little weary of lighting candles and pooping in an outhouse and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and, and my dad actually ended up getting a real job. Um, so they, you know, my, our lives took a turn for the slightly more conventional when I was, um, again, six or seven, I think. Um, and I didn't think much about doing any of this stuff, um, until I met, um, the woman who I'd eventually marry. Uh, when I was 21, um, and not long after that, about four years after we met, um, we bought a piece of land, the piece of land that we're on right now, um, and, you know, sort of slowly started evolving that into what it's become today, um, which is a piece of property in which we raise 
and forage, uh, you know, 90 plus percent of our own, um, food. Uh, we have a sawmill, so we produce all of our, uh, lumber. Um, we've, we harvest all of our firewood for heating. Um, and we actually cook on fire on wood too. Um, and so, yeah, you know, that's, but it's been an evolution. I mean, it's, that's not all stuff that we just sort of like decided to go out and do. I mean, it, it just, it, one thing just sort of led to another. Um, and I always like to point out to people that we don't really sort of have this dogmatic goal of raising a certain percentage of our own food. We just really love this work. Um, and we love the food too. Don't get me wrong, but you know, we feel really, really, really fortunate that we are able to get up in the morning and go out and do chores and be physical um, and work on behalf of our own well-being. Probably right up until about February in that winter of yours. It's <laughs> yeah, well, listen, <laughs> so definitely, out. definitely there are days when it's, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to like paint too, you know, too bucolic a picture here. No doubt there are days when you're, you know, you get up and it's 22 below and the wind's blowing and you're like, damn, I got, I got to go milk the cow. And yeah. you know, it's like, can't we just go down to the store, honey? You know? Um, but you know, I, I have to, you know, in all honesty, that doesn't happen very often and, and actually quite infrequently once in a, once in a blue moon, you know, maybe you're under the weather or maybe you were out a little late the night before or something and you wish you could sort of skip it. Um, but you know, part of the pleasure to me is the struggle too. I mean, it's, it's, it's like life, in my view, anyway, um, a lot of the satisfaction and, and gratification we get from life, um, is the result of the work that we put into it. Um, and if your life is nothing but, you know, um, honey, you know, butter and honey or milk and honey or whatever that phrase is, um, and, and everything's sort of fed to you on a silver spoon, uh, in my view, you're unlikely to ever really feel a great degree of contentment. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. I think working for things gives them uh, a sort of a value that you can't really, you know, put uh, put a number on. It, it, it's an intrinsic value that, that underlies it all that you feel a certain satisfaction and joy from that you can't get because someone else did it. So I can go buy. You know, don't get me wrong. I can go buy a really good piece of beef down the road from a guy that does a great job with his cattle, and uh, I'm not going to complain about it when it's all crispy and toasty off of the grill and perfectly <laughs> done. But yeah. there's a certain satisfaction to that steak if you do raise it yourself, or even if you were to participate in the butchering of it yourself on any level. When you when you have an active uh, involvement with something, there's something there that sure. people don't even believe you until they do it themselves. They're like, oh, totally. yeah, how I get yeah. it, right? And it never, it never ceases to amaze me. Right now we're building a barn and we're building it from lumber that I milled on our, on, on our mill, uh, that came out of logs that I skidded out of the forest that were in, you know, that were parts of trees that I felled. And, um, that is just that whole process. Um, you know, in, in some ways, it, in strictly economic terms, it may be in some cases sort of illogical almost. I mean, it's, I could probably have gone out and bought this lumber. I'm probably not paying myself a whole lot by the time all is said and done. Um, but it's the process itself that's so rewarding. And, of course, the end result of, of looking at, you know, and, and, and having that experience and being able to look at something and, and really take that level of sort of pride in it. Um, you know, that makes so much of what we do on a day in, day out basis totally worth it. Even those times when you're hot and sweaty or cold and shivering or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, that all to me is part of what makes it, uh, 
the, these experiences worth having in the first place. Yeah, and you've gotten to where you're doing an awful lot. You're producing an awful lot of your own food, but you kind of alluded to it there. And maybe you could talk about it. You didn't get to where you are in a day. Do you find when you talk to other homesteaders, especially people starting out, they try to go too far too fast instead of oh, pick something, yeah. get it done, pick another thing, get it done, pick another thing, get it done, and they end up with like 50 things all halfway done and frustrated and angry? Yes, I think I think that's an awesome point. And you know, something we hear a lot is like, I don't know, I don't know how you guys, you know, do all that. I, I don't know how you get it all done. And um, the the way we do it is that we have been doing it. We haven't. First of all, just like you said, it's like we have built up to this level. It's been it's been a step by step process. Um, uh, we've been doing it for a long time, and our systems are in place. Um, and also our our experience and knowledge, while not certainly not complete. I mean, part of the to me one of the real pleasures of this life is that it, it gives you an opportunity to always be learning right there's always new stuff you can learn um but that said you know we do have a level of experience with most of what we're doing um that uh, sort of allows us um to tackle most of these tasks without you know we, it's not like every time we go to butcher a pig now we have to go back and and watch the youtube video sure <laughs> or call our friend who's a professional butcher it's like okay now we know how to do this our systems are in place you know we know what we need to make it happen and um and so there is a certain sort of um rhythm to this work that has come from just years and years and years of repetition and and really um, almost I think of it more as like ritual than repetition, I guess, because repetition to me sort of it starts to sound a little like, okay, maybe this is a little boring. But, mm -hmm. I, you know, I find none of it boring. Every year I'm excited to plant the garden. Every fall I'm excited to harvest, and you know, the pigs and, and, and put the potatoes in the root cellar. Um, you know, I love doing firewood. Um, you know, these are all things that we do year in, year out. And 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 yet, at least to me, I... I um, as repetitive as, as I guess it might seem to some people, it never really strikes me as anything but um, but totally worthwhile. Yeah, I, I have to agree with that. And and along those lines, you know, at first when you start homesteading, and I don't care if you're homesteading or you're just growing a garden in your backyard in suburbia, the first thing is I want to grow something. I want mm -hmm. to grow, and I don't want the bugs to eat it. I don't want the dog to pee on it. If I get a tomato and a pepper in, in six months, I freaking did it. I've got some food. And yeah. if you get better at it, you start thinking about, well, I know I'm already eating food that's way higher quality than the organic section of Kroger's or anything like that. But you start focusing higher on quality. You start learning about something called nutritional density. Right. And, and that's what we're here to talk about today. So could you talk about nutritional density and what yeah. that actually means to you? So that, I'm glad you asked what it means to me because I think I, I think it can actually mean a couple of different things and and its most base level nutrient density is really just sort of the measure of a food's caloric value per unit of per unit or per generally per unit of weight. So on that according to that definition, a Big Mac is incredibly nutrient dense. Right? <laughs> okay. Um, the That's way we talk though, about right. What's that? That's not what it means to you, though. No, that's not what it means to me. Um, and the way, so the way we talk about nutrient density and what we mean when we talk about nutrient density um, is we are talking about the actual sort of nutritive value of the food. Um, and we are also talking about um, comparatively uh, the nutritive value, say, of 
oh, I don't know, a carrot or a chicken that we raise relative to the nutritive value of a carrot or a chicken that you might buy. I think your example was Kroger's or wherever it is that you're getting it. Um, And how that just because two foods uh, look the same, um, they don't necessarily, uh, they aren't actually necessarily the same in terms of what they are able to provide your body for nutrients. So, um, so that's, that's one thing that we're talking about. And, and we're also talking about, um, in our case, you know, we also do use the other, the sort of, the sort of more base definition of nutrient density, at least in terms of like when we talk about a lot of our diet being based on, um, really nutrient dense, um, uh, meats, uh, pastured meats, uh, and saturated fats. And th- so that, those, those sort of products actually sort of satisfy both sides of that definition. They're very calorically dense, um, but they're also very, very dense, um, in vitamins and minerals. Very cool. And how do we get there? I mean, what do we do differently to get to that level of, of quality in our food? Because, uh, a person can grow food in a typical garden that is better quality, you and I would both say, than anything that comes out of a store, including organic. Oh, absolutely. And it looks fantastic, but it may not have the nutritional density that it's capable of. Right. So what what's generally happening, and, and a lot of this, most of this is very, very sort of um, not just region-specific, but actual sort of site-specific. So it's hard to give... Um, overarching, you know, broad-based recommendations for everyone out there. But the one recommendation I can give is that everyone who is interested in really achieving their plant's genetic potential or their animal's genetic potential, um, the, the recommendation is to definitely start with a really broad-spectrum soil test um, because that's going to tell you um, what the capacities of your soil are, what what nutrient dense, what level of nutrient density and biologically biological activity your soils can actually support, um, and it's also going to tell you you know how to improve upon that because it's going to show you where your shortcomings are, um, and the challenge with this, or or, or maybe the opportunity if you want to look at it that way. Um, is that generally um, there can be there are vast differences from site to site in terms of the composition of soil and what it is um, either deficient or sufficient in, um, and we've noticed that even on our property when I mean, we have 40 acres and we have gardens um, on different spots in our property, and the soils can vary dramatically from one spot to the other. So the first step is for anyone who's like a serious grower. Um, who really, really wants to get the most out of their, out of their garden, um, and therefore out of their food is to get that broad spectrum soil analysis, um, because that's going to tell them what they need to do. And, and the reality is, is that, um, most soils in this country are depleted in some level or another. Um, so whether you're growing organically or conventionally or whatever, the reality is your soils are probably not sufficient to really support the full genetic potential of the seeds you're putting in the ground. Okay, so then how do we take it to that next level? Okay, so you get your soil test, right? And from your soil test, well, first thing you're going to have to do, I guess, is you're probably going to have to buy my book, um, which is called The Nourishing Homestead, and actually goes into this in a little bit more depth. Um, But uh, So you get your soil test. 
And from your soil test, you are then going to amend um, with the minerals that uh, your soil is deficient in. Um, and this is where you get into a little bit of math uh, in determining your application rates. Um, but your soil test is is sort of your baseline measurement um, from which you are going to work from. Okay. Now, I can't tell you what minerals you need because I haven't seen your soil test. So that is what's up to you. But your soil test is going to come back and it's going to say, you know, manganese, you know, your rate, your base. I'm going to make some numbers up here. So nobody should be writing this down. But, you know, your base rate should be, I don't know, 100, you know, 100 parts per million or something like that. But you're at you're at 13 parts per million. So it's going to be your job then uh, to figure out, you know, what amendment you're going to use that's going to give you the manganese that's going to get you to that that uh, proper um, proper ratio in your soils. And the reality is that you're probably going to be looking at a number of different mineral amendments um, that are going to allow your soils uh, to fully support the whatever, whether you're planting things into them or grazing animals on top of them, um, because of course your animals, if you if you're if you're working with animals, they're simply uptaking all of those nutrients that are in your soil or lack thereof. I think a lot of health problems that are really really common in livestock, homestead livestock, um, are actually the result of mineral imbalances in the soils that are not that are. Um, ensuring that the animals aren't getting the proper nutritive balance. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would also say that in a lot of instances, you can only do so much with amending soil to a certain nutrient because the plant has to be able to get it. And most soils that I've seen anyway that test to be deficient in nutrient, it's actually there in more quantity than the plant really needs. It's the plant can't get it because of the soil Health is more the problem than the soil content, if that makes sense. That can be. I mean, you know, all soils have a, a certain level of ability um, to to actually convey those nutrients to the plants. That's you're totally you're totally right on that. It's just it's it's sort of like the uh, bioavailability of um, nutrients in humans, right? So mm-hmm. um, soils can be and can be similar. Um, and again, so a lot of it comes down to also what you know what your practices are uh, in terms of actually cultivating. So there are certain practices that that are really really detrimental to to soil health. Um, rototilling, for instance, being one of them. Um, and I always when I when I go out and talk to people about this stuff, I always encourage them to think of soils um, as uh, living entities because they are. I mean, it's, uh, the soil there there are. Um, billions and billions of bacterial organisms in just a teaspoon of soil. Soil is not some inert thing. It's, it is a living, uh, a vibrant living organism. Um, and so every time, uh, you know, I encourage people to think about everything they do to their soil. Think about doing it to themselves and, and what it would hmm. do to their own uh, biological functioning. For instance, if I lay you down, Jack, and I take my rototiller and I go back and forth over you, um, you it's not, you're not going to be in very good shape. You're gonna have, oh. It's going to take you years to heal from that. Um, and <laughs> you're doing the same thing to your soil when you take a rototiller and you go churning through it. You're destroying those really intricate and symbiotic um, bacterial um, community, microbiological communities um, there that, that are essential uh, to soil health. And if they're essential to soil health, they're essential to your health. Yeah, definitely. I want to get into that next, but just on, on that note, I think the problem is that 
a lot of times things that are bad work at first. And that yeah. confuses people. So people are like, oh, if rototilling sucks so bad, why does my garden kick so much ass after I do it? Well, I, right. I look at it this way. Okay, you've killed everything, and you're growing on their dead bodies. Uh-huh. So, it, it not necessarily going to produce the highest quality food, but yeah, your plants will grow. But it's also like saying, so I had 50 chickens in my chicken house, and I killed all 50 of them, and now I have 50 chickens. What's wrong with that? Well, now you you you, you don't have any more chickens. Right. Right? Yeah. So So now if you want another 50 chickens, and you're down to, let's say, you were smart enough to at least keep eggs, and let's say the soil at least keeps what we would call it an, an analogy to eggs. We have to recultivate those eggs, grow them up, get them past the peep stage, feed them, take care of them, love on them, make them into new chickens. And if after a full season of doing that with your 50 chickens, you put aside 50 eggs and kill your 50 chickens again, and then you, you have to start that all over again, your chickens will grow, but they're not sustainable that way. And that's what I think a lot of people are doing with their tilling. Like every year you're just murdering everything you've cultivated for a year saying, look, it works, but you right. don't really know where you could be going if you tried. That's right. And, and, you know, again, I think, I think tilling can be a tool that is useful at least perhaps to, to, in your initial um, breaking up of the sod to create your garden plot. But in my view, that's really the only excuse for tilling. Um, and, and, you know, as, as soon as you have that garden established and you're, and you've created um, beds, um, you really should not, you should never till it again. Um, so that's, that's one really sort of simple thing that everybody can do that, that will actually, um, you know, they should see a marked difference in, in the health of their garden soils, uh, you know, fairly quickly. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Now, we, we got into it a little bit there, but let's go a little bit deeper. This, the soil health issue is huge. And I think that we have a, a disease epidemic in America today. And I think if we want to find the roots of that, we look into the dirt and we say the dirt, if the dirt your, your food comes from is not healthy, you're not going to be healthy. So can you talk about from your perspective, the link between the, the health of our soil and the health of our people. Sure. I mean, you know, very tangibly, we have seen, and even the USDA will acknowledge this, that we're seeing marked declines in the nutritive value, um, numerous vitamins and minerals in our fruits and vegetables over the past 50 or so years. So that's, that's just like, you know, that's just a, a that's a straight line. We can see the, 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 um, connection between what's going on with our soils and the end result, the, the demonstrable result in the loss of nutritive value of the foods that we're eating. So um, I think there's very little to no debate on that. Um, I would suggest that that there is something a little less tangible, um, but no less real, which is um, that soil health on many, many levels, um, nutritive value, um, I would argue even... Uh, it has even an impact um, on our health in ways that we perhaps are not quite so visible to us. But it, I think it is clearly, to me, the underlying foundation of, of human health and well-being. And so all we've done over about the past 100 years, um, but particularly in the last 50 years, um, is, is pretty much do everything we can to deplete our soils um, particularly in the breadbasket of this country through really, really rapacious and poor farming practices that are um, depleting topsoil at a rate that is uh, up to 50 times um, higher than the rate of natural topsoil uh, restoration and reformation. So um, I think, it, you know, broadly speaking, you can measure a nation's health and well-being by 
measuring the health and well-being of its soil base. Um, so I do always encourage people to remember that everything in their lives, including themselves, um, at some point or another came from the soil. And, and if you're talking about yourself and your constant need to sort of eat to, to regenerate new cellular growth, um, you know, you are, we are all products of the soil. Uh, everything that we rely on on a day-in, day-out basis is on some level a product of the soil. That's where it came from. Without the soil, we wouldn't have it. Um, so uh, it's, it, it really is, I, you know, the nervous system of our entire um, society, and yet we treat it, you know, no pun intended, but we treat it like dirt. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that the biggest problem is that we don't even know anymore what's different between dirt and soil. I think most of the people in this audience do. But yeah, I agree. You, but you said to somebody, you know, it, your problem is your garden's full of dirt instead of soil. They'd say, what? what, what, what? Right. They, they wouldn't even comprehend sure. the difference. But I do think humans intrinsically know because, Ben, you have to tell you, you can't tell me that like. Regardless of samples and stuff like that, you haven't had somebody just pick dirt up out of a bed and look at it and went, wow. Like your mind just knows immediately that is healthy, well-structured soil. I, I wish I had more of that. That is beautiful. And you look at other stuff and you go, yeah, not so much. And I think a person that has no idea really still, it's almost like pattern recognition on some level. Like, you know, men always pick the meat out in the grocery store because you can look at some <laughs> and go, No, not not happening. And your wife's like, what? And you're like, trust me, I'm the caveman. I used to club it millions of years ago, whatever. We don't want this. We want that. And I think most human beings can look at soil and actually see maybe not what's perfect, but what's better. I don't disagree. In fact, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I guess the, the issue is how many opportunities do most human beings have to even look at soil anymore, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, fewer and fewer of us have any connection to the actual process of producing our own food, um, for better or worse. Some people would say for better. Um, I'm not, so I'm not making, you know, I'm not making value judgments on these. I'm just, I'm just pointing out, you know, more and more of us live in urban environments where most of the soil is paved over. Um, and so there, 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 the, the connection just isn't there anymore. And, and I think you may be right that when people are actually sort of, you know, able to hold and feel and see and smell and touch and taste and all of that, all of that stuff. Yes, they can make that distinction on their own. It's just that, um, more and more, uh, people just don't have those opportunities. Um, and so they aren't able to make that distinction. And I think, you know, fundamentally that's where so much confusion around food and nutrition comes from. That's why we have all these you know, sort of crazy diets that go in and out of fashion. That's why we have, you know, 15 different kinds of trendy, uh, progressive agriculture going on. You know, hmm. we've got the permaculture, we've got the sustainable, we've got the organic, we've got the biodynamic, we've got the this and that. Um, and I think a lot of that just comes from this place of, um, you know, frankly, confusion. And, and, I, and I say this not not to denigrate any, any of those styles or any particular diet. I think there's value and, 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 and to be taken from, from all of them. Um, but it all ha I think has come from this place ultimately of, you know, massive confusion and trying to sort out what the hell is our relationship to food and the land supposed to be. 
Absolutely. I would agree with that. When you look at the big food movement, right? The well, movement's maybe not the word, the big food industry and the big pharmaceutical industry, based on what I've read of your work, you see a pretty big link there, don't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, here's, I mean, here's the, here's the, the shorthand. Here's the Cliff Snows version of it, right? You've got a food industry, um, that's feeding you crap that's making you sick so that the drug companies can get you onto drugs that will keep you just alive enough so that you can keep eating the crap that's making you sick. Right? It's, it's, it's basically a perfect storm of profits for big pharma and big food. Um, and I call it, you know, some people will tell you that, that, that I'm not a big conspiracy theory theorist. Um, but I, what I like to call it, it's a, a conspiracy of convenience. Um, and so whether or not this is something that's been orchestrated from the top down, which I frankly don't really buy into, um, or whether it's just sort of evolved in this way to where the CDC is predicting by 2050, one in three Americans will be on diabetes drugs, right? So, you know, huge profit potential there, let me tell you. Um, I think it's just convenient that we're, be, you know, we have a food industry um, that's making tremendous profits off food that offers very little nutritive value and is, in fact, degenerative, not just to us, but to our land base. Um, and now we have a pharmaceutical industry that makes, <coughs> excuse me, most of its profits off treatments uh, for diet-related preventable diseases and, you know, quite conveniently enough, is able to keep us just alive enough for long enough that we have to keep buying that, that we keep buying that food and therefore keep taking the drugs. Um, and it's not just physical health. If you look at what the numbers relating, um, to, to, um, antipsychotics, all sorts of psychotropic medications, um, to treat conditions like ADD and ADHD, uh, antidepressants, um, you, you see, you know, huge increases in prescriptions of these drugs over the last 30 years. In many cases, seven, eight, nine, ten times. Um, so, you know, there's a trend here. You know, here's another one. America is 4.6% of the world population and consumes 80% of the painkillers. Hmm. Right? Mm, and, I thought you were going to annoy me and say we 80% of the resources thing, but no. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, there's probably that too. I don't know. But, you know, but, but it's the, you know, that's, it's the painkillers, man. It's the wow. painkillers. So, you know, what, where is all of this malaise coming from? And obviously, you know, it's not just food. There's all sorts of, of reasons that we're in such a sorry state. Um, but it's also obvious that food and our relationship to the land, um, whether or not we actually are working with the land, I'm not saying that everyone needs to run out and get their bucolic 40-acre homestead. You know, uh, there are a lot of different ways to live in some level of harmony with this world, this biosphere, and to feed ourselves <laughs> in ways that are going to actually support our health and well-being, both physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, whatever you want to call it, um, and not necessarily live like we do. I, I, I don't mean to sort of suggest that. Um you know, but clearly we have gone way radically off track. Yeah, I I would say we are so far off track, it, it's unbelievable. And I I know that people think I'm um, a little bit tin hat, I guess, when I say this, but I really believe it's because the people that run this country and, and run the world, for that matter, view us as their own field from which to harvest energy and oh, the yeah. form of money. I mean, that's that's why, because they don't want to. You don't want to. You know, if you're doing factory farming. You, you, you don't want to kill the chicken up until the slaughter date 
Uh, but you don't really care if it's sick. All you care is does it make you money. So it's not almost like I want to make you sick because I'm an evil bastard. It's more like I don't care that you get sick. I care that what I do works. That's right. Which is ironic because it's kind of the way we farm. I don't care that the soil is sick as long as I get corn out of it. We are, in a, in a sense, the sort of confinement livestock of the contemporary 21st century industrial economy, right? So, yeah. Uh, and I, you know, another, another analogy I really like to make, um, is, is that between, um, you know, livestock and animals and giving them the freedom to express themselves, letting a cow <laughs> be a cow, letting a pig be a pig, um, and the amazing things these animals can accomplish. Um, and, and the health that that they uh, experience when you give them a, a natural environment and, and allow them to express themselves according to their innate tendencies, um, and what's going on? I, and I think I think you know the, there there is a real a, a real connection between um, what we see in livestock and what's happening with humankind right now. Um, and so when you coop people up all day every day. Um, you know, when you, when you give them very few options to be sort of quote unquote successful, but to pursue their own economic end vis-a-vis -vis most often a job, um, that is, uh, you know, not fulfilling to them. And that's not just rhetoric. I know some people love their jobs. I, I get that. But, but the majority of Americans do not and find their jobs unfulfilling when that's the only option they have. Do you really think that those human beings are able to express themselves to their full potential? No, I don't. Not at right. All. It's a rhetorical question, man. And, and, and you know, and, and that was the answer I was looking for. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, of course not. You know, and so um, I see that a lot. And, and, and I guess, you know, one of the reasons, at least for me, that this lifestyle is or this life, you know, lifestyles, uh, as soon as you throw the word style in there, it somehow sounds a little hollow. But um, that this life is so, you know, meaningful to me is that it does give me the opportunity, I feel like, to sort of express myself in a way that is really, really rewarding to me um, and meaningful. And, and um, again, so I don't think everyone, you know, wants to live like we do, nor should they. Um, but I do think that if people are not thinking really hard about what it is that they would like to be waking up in the morning and doing – and trying to figure out how to get there, um, if they're not there already, um, you know, they're selling themselves a little bit short. And, you know, the, the tragic thing is it's increasingly difficult to do that in the context of the economy we have right now. Yeah, I would completely agree. Now, in doing all of this, you've gotten up to as much as 90% of your calories off of the land. Can you talk about what it's like to grow and more, maybe more importantly, you have to process 90% of your own food. Yeah. What, what your days look like, what your diet looks like. Yeah. Well, you really, I mean, I'll, I'll hit on something. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about something you hit on there that is, was, you know, really is really pretty savvy. Actually. It's not the growing, it's the processing, you know, it's like yeah. growing food is actually relatively easy. It's the processing that I think sometimes catches people by surprise. Um, and if you really are going to eat, you know, this quantity of your calories off your own own property and put it up or even just put it up yourself. Um, and, and this is particularly true in a four season climate, of course, uh, you know, you're going to be spending a lot of time just processing. Um, and that is definitely a reality for us. Um, and so, yeah. So what do our days look like? I mean, it, it is um, our lives are definitely very um, seasonal in nature, very connected to the season. So this time of year, 
you know, we're spending a lot of time in the gardens, just, um, most stuff's in the ground right now, but we're mulching, uh, doing a little bit of weeding. Um, we're starting to harvest some of the early greens and, you know, having salads and stuff, but the major sort of like storage crops, of course, won't come out of the ground until this fall. Um, fall is a huge sort of like food prep time. Um, we do a lot of fermented vegetables, so kimchi, sauerkraut, and other sort of ferments, lacto-fermentation, which I'm sure you're familiar with that term and probably a lot of your listeners are too. Sure. Um, and one of the reasons we do that is exactly the reason you and I were just talking about, which is processing. It is, um, in my view, the simplest and most healthful way um, to store a lot of vegetables that you would otherwise have a hard time storing. It's very – it's also um, – one of the most elegant and sort of egalitarian forms of food preservation ever invented because it requires essentially no energy. Um, it requires very little particular skill. Um, and it's essentially super cheap, super quick, super easy, super healthful. So we do almost no canning anymore in part because canning is miserable. Um, in part because it is really not good for the nutri nutritive value of the food. Um, and mostly because it's miserable, though. Um, we do, we do do, uh, we'll can a little applesauce maybe for a treat or something, but we really don't, we lack to ferment most things. Um, and this leads me to, um, another aspect of this that you, that you also touched on, which is like, what does your diet look like? And so one of the ways that we are able to grow, process, um, preserve such a high percentage of our own food is that we have sort of just given the boot to a lot of really common foodstuffs, right? So we basically eat what we can produce, and we have chosen to just not buy in a lot of things that are super common in the contemporary American diet. Um, so while we don't adhere to, like, any particular dietary ideology, um, like we do eat some grains, uh, we're not paleo, we're not, you know, I don't, we're not, we're, we're clearly not vegan. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're about the furthest thing. I like the way you said that. Um, but, uh, so, you know, so we don't adhere to any particular sort of ideology, but that said, we'd also don't eat a lot of grains in part because we just don't grow grains. So, you know, the, the one portion of that, you know, eight, nine, ten percent of calories that we do buy in is some a small amount of grains. Um, but mostly we OK, we eat a lot of meat. We eat a lot of dairy. We make most of our own butter. Um, we make most of our own cheese, uh, you know, all of our own milk. We we eat a lot of vegetables. Um, we uh, grow all of our own vegetables and either eat them fresh, you know, through the fall, um, or fermented over the course of the winter. You know, a lot of storage crops, root root storage crops. Um, so yeah, uh, a lot of fruit. We have a we have a a lot of blueberry uh, plants, and we harvest a lot of blueberries, and uh, we eat blueberries year round because through the magic of freezing. Um, so you have meat, uh, vegetables, fruit, and dairy. And that is probably that, th those four categories comprise probably 90 plus percent of our diet. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the canning thing there. So like a lot of preppers, uh, I had canned all my life, but then when we got seriously into it, I went out and bought like this beast of a behemoth of an all-american canner which to be uh -huh. fair my great-grandkids will probably look at someday and go what the heck is this right. um yeah, yeah. it is like it's hot it's a lot of work it takes a long time 
And, and what I've, I found, and I can't even remember what it's called. I'll, I'll find it in the mess that is my kitchen right now while it's being remodeled and put a link in the show notes today for people uh, so they can see it. I found this little electric canner that actually does pressure canning. It's the only one I found that'll do it. And our canning now is limited to this. I make a giant pot of um, something like butternut squash soup or something. Mm-hmm. And, and this thing cans like the small canning jars, right? So like a one-serving canning jar, four going at a time. So like you you put it in there, you push a button, you set the time, you walk away. Uh-huh. And we'll do like two batches, so we'll end up with like four pints. Or eight pints, I'm sorry. And they go on the shelf, and then the next time we make soup, we do that again. And that's like right. the only canning we do now because it is nice that I don't have to freeze it and take up, you know, animal space because sure because <laughs> that's yeah. a place for an animal to go after it's graduated. And like that's the way that like I haven't pulled that all American thing out in like two years. I almost, almost being the opportune word, feel bad about that. But on the other end, I'm looking at it going, this is so much easier, and there's so many other better ways to preserve food. Yeah, well, I'm not even familiar with the item you're talking with the you know with the, what you're talking about, but it sounds kind of like a small piece of genius. But I just know that most people's experience with canning is like, you know, is, is standing over the the, the canner and, and sweating and you know it happens right. It happens just building the whole time of year, right? You're, you're harvesting all this stuff in like August and September yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, you ever notice that you don't can anything in like January? Exactly. It, you know, and and plus there's a million other things going on, and canning can be very time consuming. Um, so you know, the fermenting is 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 so elegant because, uh, for instance, with green beans. We just ferment them a few quarts at a time all summer long, so there are always, uh, always jars, quart jars of green beans fermenting on our counter. They go through this like initial ferment at room temperature, um, so you know they'll stay on our counter for like three days, and then we put them in in cool storage in our basement. Um, but it's just a piece of cake. We don't even we don't even take the stems off. We just stick the whole friggin' thing in the jar, cover it with water, a little salt, a couple cloves of garlic, boom. And that's it. And we'll eat those all winter long. Mm. Um, so, uh, it, now it's probably not that simple if you live somewhere where you're on a chlorinated water supply. You have to be, remember that you cannot, um, you really, it's really difficult to lactate ferment properly if there's, if there, if you're on chlorinated water. So that's something for people, listeners to be aware of. They'll have, they might, they'll be extremely frustrated if they try. Yeah. I never really thought of that because I've been on a well for so long. I, I don't remember yeah. what the alternative is, but, That's a great point you bring up. Yeah, it's yeah, and, and and of course the reason is of course that the chlorine is is making it very difficult for the for the good bacteria um, to proliferate, and so you end up with a lot more kind of icky, um, mushy batches um, well, and a lot well, higher failure rate. Yeah, and like back in the day, you just like let the water sit for 48 hours and you were good. But now they don't just use chlorine; they use chloramine, which just doesn't go away. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the municipal water now is using chloramine, which is much harder to be gone with. And unless you want to dump like stuff or fish tanks in your fermentation water, right? It's kind of difficult. But I guess then you're 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 buying a couple of jugs of spring water to fill your uh, your crock with. Which I mean, to be fair, you can buy water like that for what sixty cents a gallon or something. Yeah, and if if I live somewhere where the you know that was I didn't have fresh spring or well water, I I would certainly do that, but. Um, I would, you know, I, I guess the only downside of fermenting is some people just don't like the taste, right? Yeah. Um, and that's the, really the only downside. <laughs> yeah, I have a spousal unit that's like completely opposed to the the taste of fermentation. You know, uh-huh. it's difficult because right. I love every like sauerkraut and I've oh, yeah, escabeche, so which is basically like peppers and onions and uh, carrots. 
right. the hot peppers. That it's like a Mexican thing, and I love that. And I do uh, I do yogurt cheese where you take the yogurt and hang it and let it get firm. And oh yeah, it's yeah. like things like ew, it has that taste. I'm like oh god, you know what? Let's do this with you. Let's let's put you in the woods for three weeks with no food, right. and you're gonna <laughs> love all this. But and she, uh, I almost slept outside when I said that once. Yeah, well, and yet, you know, one thing to know about that taste is that that taste is a, a, an indicator of um, really a, a broad array of really, really healthy bacteria that's incredibly important for you to be um, to to introduce to your gut. If you if you want to be, you know, good health starts in your gut, uh, and so all of all of that sort of that 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 fermented taste um, is an indicator of that bacteria that's really really important to your overall health and well being. So, for those people who don't particularly like that taste, I would encourage them to try to make it into an acquired taste. Yeah. I've always tried to tell her, you know, if you would just eat a spoonful uh-huh. of sauerkraut a day. Yeah. Like, it, I don't want to. It's like, honey, you know what? Any, if you're sick, you'll, you'll take a, a tablespoon of the green ick medicine that makes you go to sleep and not be miserable all night long. And if you can eat a tablespoon of, remember, because like you and I are a little older, right? Like, People today are spoiled with NyQuil, right? They have like the cherry right. flavor or whatever. You and I remember Green Death, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can eat a tablespoon right. of Green Death NyQuil. You can eat a tablespoon of freaking sauerkraut with caraway seeds in it. Yeah, right. No doubt. <laughs> and, you know, also there's – and here's just a little tip for people, any any readers or any listeners who might be interested in, in um, eating more of that stuff but are having a hard time stomaching it. As, um, we uh, often will put, like, sauerkraut on top of a, a green salad oh, yeah. uh, with a little, like, balsamic vinaigrette for dressing. And that's a way that, like, even people who don't generally uh, enjoy that kind of fermented taste um, can eat that stuff and really, really appreciate it. Pulled pork, man, you know. and just, Oh, there you go. Just mix yeah. it in. You no, know, don't cook it in there. Just right. right. That's right. Add just, it afterwards. Just mix a tablespoon or two in there. You're going to get all that lactobacillus, and it's... Burritos. I, I can't burrito. tell you how how much I believe that my turnaround in health is not just attributed to paleo. It's it's, it's as much attributed to fermented foods because... Yeah, sure. If you're, it's the same thing as the soil, right? If the, the microbiology in the soil is wrong, then it's all wrong. If the microbiology in your gut is wrong, then it's all wrong. It's all wrong. You're and, you know, look at all the um, autoimmune stuff we have today to deal with, right? Yeah. And, and, and people act like, well, that's just the way it is. Like, as though the human body was fine for, you know, depending on what your beliefs are, 6,000 to 60 million years, somewhere in there. Take your pick. Right. And one day, you know, like 50 years ago, all of the human bodies around the world, like 10% of them just said, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to attack myself. Mm-hmm. I, I've never done this before, but you know what? It's it's 1955. It's right. about time that I <laughs> got not, on with attacking myself. It's 1955, right? You know, and it, it really is about 55 when it when you know the incidents of things like lupus, etc., started coming forward. And what people say in defense is, well, no, we just got better at diagnosing it. Oh, I don't know when a person has like a butterfly rash on their chest and is near death. Whether we had a word for it or not, we know something's wrong. Right. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, if you talk to any microbiologist who really sort of has, has studied the history of, of human health and understands the relationship between human health and, and gut bacteria, and actually it, you know, an increasing number of microbiologists do understand this. This is, a, this is one area of healthcare that is really, really positive. There is a lot of growing awareness about the correlation here um, and the relationship, but uh, 
you know, they'll tell you that we are, by and large, um, a society that's being victimized by hyper-hygienization. In other words, we're we're going to such extents to to sort of, you know, shield ourselves from bacteria, you know, like, you know, I mean, if you even just say the word bacteria in a crowded theater and like 98% of the people are going to go rushing for the exit, like you just, you know, shouted fire, you know? Yeah. Um, and bacteria are what allow us to, we are bacteria. Um, and, and so, you know, we well, have bacteria than person. That's correct. Yes. On a, on a, on a, on a, a numerical basis, we are 10 times as much bacteria as human cell material. That is correct. Now the human cells are bigger, but yeah. that said, on a numerical basis, the bacteria, the ba- bacteria are running the show. Um, so, uh, we have this sort of, and we have entire industries built on the idea of hyperhygienization on sterilization, um, and it's all to our short-term detriment. Uh, um, you know, in the short-term, I mean, I'm sorry, long-term detriment. In the short-term, you know, washing your hands so that you don't catch a cold or catch the flu or whatever um, may seem like really sound practice, um, but in the long term, the 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 more we as a society collectively deprive ourselves of exposure to these microbes, ultimately, the more vulnerable we become. Absolutely. And with, with that in note, you know, we're, we're getting into a world of in, uh, independence versus interdependence. Yes. And, and I've read your writings, and you talk a lot about those two terms. Can you kind of expand on that? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I, I think this comes up a lot when people talk about homesteading, uh, small-scale agriculture or whatever. Um and this idea of independence, you know, the independent homestead, uh, the self-sufficient homestead. Um, and I totally understand, I guess, the, the, the motivation, the desire behind that, that sense of sort of wanting that level of independence. Um, but I also think it's a little dangerous. Um, and I think it's a little bit of a fallacy, to be honest. Um, and... For us, anyway, um, it's been much more rewarding to feel like we are part of an interdependent community of people that are helping one another out. Um, And I think in most cases, when people talk about being independent um, and and not needing, you know, their neighbors or other people to help them out, um, they're oftentimes trading their dependence on those individuals in their community, friends, family, you know, neighbors, what have you. For dependence on industry, and it's really just the, the the prevalence of industry and its offerings that sort of enable us to sort of live in this illusion of independence. And so, um, I'm totally not ashamed to admit that I am dependent on people in my community and and in my family. Um, and and I would like to think that there are people in my community and family who feel like they are dependent on me. Um, I think. Uh, you know, that to me is a much more enjoyable and just sort of meaningful way to live your life when you're working with other people. Um, and I don't, I'm not talking about some kind of like hippie commune here. I mean, we're living out on our <laughs> land on our own. You know, you can't even see another house from our house. Yeah. Um, I'm just talking about having, you know, relationships with people. And also, this is something I think that's really important is that sense of feeling, um, feeling needed yourself. You know, I mean, sure. it's like, we are already going down the path, and you know from having talked to me about my views on education, you know, we're going way down the path of creating useless categories in our society. One, and, and two of the most prevalent useless categories are children and the elderly. 
Um, and we've created systems where these, these people are essentially not that necessary. Um, and I think, you know, creating interdependent communities, uh, where people are working together, um, toward, the, wow. you know, a common good, um, you know, I, to me, that's much, much more rewarding. I, I, I just had this thing I gotta say now, or I'm gonna forget it. And it, yeah, go for it's it. really messed up because, but it, it, it kind of tells how society looks at, People now, and I actually want to talk to you about something we, we found out about yesterday that I put on the show that's like a solution to this. But when you were talking about like making these, these two groups useless, I actually thought, well, it's not exactly true with the, the, the masters, right? Because the right. children will grow up and be the new, the new crop, right? And then the old yes. people are spent. And this is the way I see it. We're like the ammunition being fired right now. You and I, right? Cause we're doing the work. The kids are like the bullets down in the magazine, right? Uh-huh. And they view the elderly as like the spent brass. Right. I mean, as sick as that sounds. Like when you, you weren't in the military, were you? Track, my mind, like I was, what a sick ass society we live in. But that's exactly like okay, you kids, you're you're useless for now, but you're right. the spring's pushing you up. When you hit 18, you get fired into the system. Bullet yeah. hazard trajectory. It reaches terminal velocity. It drops over the edge. The the rainbow trajectory takes over. You hit the dirt. Now you're spent, brass. Get out of the way. Well, so let me be clear. When I say useless, I mean, you know, essentially useless to their community. Uh, So very, very useful to corporation and industry. Don't get me wrong, right? Because what is more, what is more useful to corporation and industry than to raise a bunch of helpless children? And to outsource the care of your parents. And to outsource the care of your parents. Exactly. Yeah. so when I say when I say useless, I, I do definitely mean in the context of one's own community, you know, and that feeling um, of of not feeling, uh, you know, or feeling like you're not contributing or unable to contribute. And I think that's a really, really common, um, common feeling in contemporary first world societies. Um, so uh, I can't even remember where we started all this, but but. Um, I guess we were talking about, or I started talking about education and kids. And, yeah. and, you know, that's another aspect of sort of what we're doing here that's so important to us is, you know, creating an environment where our children, oh, we're talking about interdependence, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, creating an environment where our children can be active participants toward some sort of tangible, um, you know, tangible end, something that they can see and they, and, and that they know is essential to their family's well-being. Um, and also, um, you know, where, Older people, elderly people in our community can be part of that experience, hopefully, too. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, uh, these are these are huge and important subjects and issues. And, and you quickly see, you know, for me anyway, I see how, like, you can start out talking about, like, homesteading and soil and food. And all of a sudden, you realize that that is intimately connected to, to um economy and education sure. and fear and all of these different responses that we have, you know, it's, it, it's almost impossible to talk about anything, any of these subjects in isolation from one another. Well, I mean, the, the cliche is right. I got to put food on the table and a roof overhead. I, the, the cliche is not, at least not yet. You know, I, I need, I need a, a Facebook account and an iPhone, right? right. So I got to provide that for the family. So right. I mean, there's this intrinsic concept that being able to house care for and feed ourselves is, is the basis of all things but i want to kind of make your day because i bet you haven't heard of this or you would have mentioned it yet but the subject you're on i put out a thing yesterday on a kickstarter that's called present perfect and uh-huh. making a documentary and i said this years ago this needed to be done the problem is the solution to permaculture you got these these young people that aren't being cared for these old people that aren't being cared for 
put them together like it used to be. So right. there's this daycare center that's been set up inside like like a, an assisted living facility for the elderly. Uh-huh. So the staff of actual, you know, daycare workers is cut dr- drastically because these old folks maybe can't run things, but they can do a lot to help these kids. Sure. Every day the kids go to the old folks home. Right. I and and and, and like the the joy that you see in in this is is immense. Oh yeah. Like, we need to do this everywhere. I mean, I would prefer to go back to multi-generational homes and all, but yeah. We but are where we not, are and there's these two groups that are just so you know, grandma lives in in Washington and, and grandchild lives in Florida, but somebody's grandfather lives in 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 Florida and somebody's grandchild lives in Washington. And and these and human beings are are social beings. We we need to be together. I mean, if you think about it this way, you know, try to name animals, even insects that are truly solitary, and you'll come up with like solitary wasps and solitary wasps and and, and, right, and so, I mean there's not a lot of even creatures that are completely independent from yeah. their own kind and yet we're yeah. isolating these two groups that can be so healed by being together sure and you know you look at why wh- what is the root cause of that isolation and I, w- I would argue that the root cause of that isolation is that it's profitable for us to be isolated from one another Correct. it's right? profitable and it's so, easier to control us right exactly I mean, exactly. You don't want yeah. cows thinking for themselves, right? Right. <laughs> Who knows what might happen? They, they yeah. might milk themselves, and you know, the dog might put his leash in his mouth and walk himself. The, the whole world could be anarchy, and that would be terrible if you wanted to be in charge. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So um, you mentioned livestock quite a bit. Um, that's a big part of what you do, isn't it? Like the I, I find it ironic that some people think they really are going to feed themselves on a nutrient dense level just growing vegetables. I think there's a uh, a really uh, important role that livestock play on our homestead. I would say even for the vegetarian. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. So I'll say I'll say a couple things about livestock. First of all, in my humble opinion, um, ruminant animals, uh, i.e., um, in, in our case, cows, uh, both for dairy and for beef, um, grazing on pasture is by far the most sustainable. Uh, food system that that one can imagine, and and of course there's there's all sorts of things wrong with the dominant meat industry. So when I talk about livestock and and consumption of meat and dairy, I'm talking about a very different model. I think I think this uh, hopefully is clear by now than the, than the dominant industry, which locks them up and brings their food to them um, rather than lets them out to graze their food. But if you think about what's the most ab- what's the most abundant perennial crop on the face of this planet, Jack. Grass. You got it, right? So, and we as humans can eat grass. It's no problem. All we need is that intermediary in the form of a ruminant animal to process it for us, right? So we have all over this country millions of acres of the most nutritive food source that people are destroying with lawnmowers, you know? Um and and so using ruminant animals to convert grass, which is really just an expression of sunshine. I mean, ruminant animals are the most elegant way uh, to eat a vegan diet that exists. I agree with I, that. I'm a vegan. I'm a vegan. I'm a vegan that eats ruminant <laughs> animals. Right. <laughs> 
So I meant it a different way, but I get your point because I say it yeah, all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I really, you know, obviously, I I'm say be a vegetarian, get your your daily dose of herbivore. Right, exactly. You know, I'm I'm trying to be a little provocative here, but but I want people to see that um, you know, this form of animal livestock of of livestock husbandry and and of of meat and dairy consumption, where the animals are allowed to graze on grass with no intervention. Um, is is perhaps the most sustainable form of new and and lowest input human energy input form of um, food production going. Uh, so it's crazy to think that meat production and dairy production has to be is intrinsically bad for the environment. That's just simply not true. Now the way ninety nine point nine percent of meat and dairy is produced in this country is intrinsically bad for the environment, but lost in the conversation about how, how rapacious these industries are is the, is the, is the fundamental truth that, uh, meat and dairy can actually not just be environmentally benign, but environmentally beneficial, um, and provide a, a huge, um, health benefit in the process. I completely agree with that. So, um, you have this term, And the first thing I thought of is, do we, do we really need a freaking another word? And that is practiculture. Oh God. Yeah. No. Okay. So right? let me answer your question. No, we don't need another word. <laughs> we don't. I'm sorry about that. I really am. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> that term sort of evolved out of like my own like sort of sense of frustration of not being, again, I remember earlier I was talking about like the confusion and my, I guess my own sense of confusion of like, well, how do I describe what we're doing here? Because, We're not certified organic, and I think most, uh, um, you know, while while there are some things about being organic that have some value, the reality is that organic has largely become a branding exercise. Um, you know, I don't really consider us permaculturalists. I don't really, I wouldn't even necessarily say that everything we're doing is perfectly sustainable. You know, there's all these terms that are out there that are like, don't really fit what we're doing. And I guess, you know, I sort of got a little jealous that everyone else had a word to describe what they were doing and I didn't. So, um, anyway, yeah, uh, practiculture, you know, I guess I sort of liked it because it was different because one of the things we do try to do is make this stuff accessible, you know, not just to ourselves, but to other people. Um, so explaining to people that, you know, you don't need a tremendous lot, uh, degree of fancy infrastructure to grow a huge amount of your own food. Um, something like fermenting your vegetables is an incredibly practical and simple and healthy way to put up food. So, There was part of me that was like, oh, this is kind of a cool way to describe what we're doing. But I 100% agree with you, Jack. It's like the last thing the world needs is yet another term, you know. So let's just forget about it. I think it's more of like it's what you use to describe your own thing. So I was kind of picking on you there. But no, I'm it's like, cool. I, it's not like you know, a new I, brand. It's not like you're, I'm going to go to Hewitt'sPracticulture.com next. And no, no, no. Yeah, right. I, and and there's not going to be any Hewitt'sPracticulture.com either. <laughs> so, um Yeah, no, it's just like, you know, I see like all, all of these other sort of, uh, subgenres of, of food production and, and they all have their, their pretty names. And I'm thinking to myself, damn, I need me one of those. So. No, I understand because I, you know, I changed the word hugaculture into woodcore gardening. Uh huh. And Paul right. Bean's like, why, why would you do that? It, I think people understand what it is. I'm like, No, you know what? A redneck from Tyler, Texas doesn't know what the hell a hugaculture is. Right. Exactly. And when I say it's woodcore gardening, 
Even if he doesn't quite get it, he goes, oh, I see. Yeah, right, right. If I say, about, yeah, it's like a pile of sticks guard. Like, right? There's like a, like a, like a, like an earwig crawling out of my nose instead of my ear. And there's also like, you know, a Helger mic crawling out of my ass or something. They just right. like, what the hell are you talking about? And they, we don't quite trust them Germans around here or whatever. Uh, right, right. But when you say woodcore, okay, well, now it makes sense. And what you're saying is like, you're culturing and you're doing it practically, right? So right. you're just trying sure, to. There you go. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, really all we're doing is growing food and, and, you know, uh, living, living the life that is meaningful to us. And, uh, you know, you call it whatever you want. I really don't care. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't even care, but, you know, there's, there's all this debate, like, what's a homestead? What's a farm? I don't care. I just don't care, you know? Um, I just, I just want to know that I get to wake up in the morning and do something that's meaningful to me and that, um, at the end of the day, I can go to bed and feel like, um, you know, feel satisfied sure. with, with what I did and feel good about it. So Absolutely. that's, that's what we're talking about. So we talk a little bit here at the end about your book. You have this new book out. Uh, you want to tell people about it? Yeah. It's called The Nourishing Homestead. There's a subtitle there too, but I can't remember what it is. You, you <laughs> might have it there. You might have it there in front of you. Um, so really, this is a book that I would describe as being like 70% uh, practice and 30% philosophy, maybe, or maybe 35, 65. And so it really talks a lot about a lot of what we've talked about today, um, sort of how we go about uh, producing nutrient-dense food on sort of uh, on, a, on a homestead scale production. So for us, that means we have six cows, we have a couple of pigs, we have chickens, we have a hundred blueberry plants. We have, uh, we do, we do the logging like I talked about earlier. We have extensive gardens, et cetera, et cetera. We put up all this food. Um, <clears throat> but it really is that the, the focus is on, um, raising foods that are, um, nutritively speaking, far and away superior, um, to what you can find even probably at your local health food market. So, um, it talks a lot about soil amending, working with your soils, you know, working with your livestock in ways that can heal the landscape, um, and also provide, um, ultimate health to your livestock. And if people want to get that book, what's the best way for them to do that? And, and explain why they may, if they want to support what you're doing, choose an option other than Amazon. Yeah. Yes. Hey, thank you for that. Um, so I always I always ask people to support their local bookseller um, in part because in my experience as an author, as a writer, going around and doing readings and, and presentations, um, a lot of those happen at bookstores and, and bookstores are a place <clears throat> where I think communities can still experience some sense of that interdependence. Um, and Amazon is definitely not that place. Um, so that said, a lot of people don't have local booksellers anymore. So <laughs> if people uh, would prefer not to support Amazon and, and their forthcoming uh, drone delivery program, um, <laughs> which I don't know, is that still happening? I don't even know. I think they're working on it. I think it's just the fact that they're thinking about it scares the crap out of me. So uh, <laughs> I don't know. It could be, could be good target practice. So, uh, so um, they can go to my website, which is www.benhewitt.net. Um, I'm always happy to take orders over my website personally. Um, I can also point them in the direction of a couple of bookstores that are local to me that would be happy to ship them a copy. So I guess my first choice is find your local bookstore. Um, second choice, come to me. Third choice, if, if all else fails, go to the big A. 
Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to crap on Amazon. I order stuff from them every day. I actually ordered something from them during this interview, so I'll admit <laughs> using them because they're convenient and you can get anything. But I was really, they not riveting it, enough for you? No, nah, just really. I was almost done when I called you. I had to just hit, <laughs> but um, <laughs> no. But I mean, I, I think especially with with writing, people don't know how hard it is to write a book. That's why I have three half written books. That's yeah, no doubt, written book. And, and authors, you know, live and die based on, you know, making some money off of the tremendous amount of blood, sweat, and tears that goes into a book. And when you want to see the least amount of your money go into the pocket of the person that actually produced the book, buy it from Amazon and you, you'll make that happen. I mean, yeah, if no I'm saying something from a major Fortune 500 brand, I don't care if I'm using Amazon. But when I'm buying someone that I could buy from directly or through a, a better channel for them and their channel, then, then I would choose to go through that alternate channel. Yeah, I mean, the difference between someone buying a book from Amazon, you know, for me, uh, in terms of, like, what goes into my pocket is, like, um, Amazon is, you know, maybe a buck or a buck fifty if I'm lucky. Um, if, if you buy it directly from me, um, I'm probably going to make ten bucks on it. Which is uh, a heck of a lot easier to make a living on people giving you ten bucks than one. That's right. It's no called doubt. ARPU for those not in the corporate world. Right. <laughs> But yeah, oh boy, yeah, authorship. We should do a whole other show on authorship and we, making your living heard, as a writer. A lot of aspiring authors in the audience that would like to, and people considering, you know, publishers and self-publishing and all oh, kinds yeah. of things like that. And I think different things work for different people based on different goals, agendas, uh, skill levels, subject matter, you name it. And I think you'd agree though that any author is probably crazy if they don't. Also include Amazon in their outreach because uh, that way you reach people you would never find otherwise. Yeah, no, there's some, there's definitely some truth to that. I mean, it's a little bit of a necessary evil. Um, no question. Yeah, no question. Absolutely. So anyway, man, I appreciate you being with us. I'll have links in the show notes to your website and to, uh, your buy a book page so people can avoid the big A if they choose to do so. And, uh, I think you'd still say even if, if, if they're like, well, the only way I'm going to do it's Amazon. Well, then didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather have them buy it than not. Yeah. No question, yeah. yeah. It's a great book, by the way. I've been through it. Uh, Chelsea Green, who's your publisher, sent me a copy. And uh, they sent me two other books, and I won't name them because I don't want to sound bad to anybody, but I liked yours better than the other two. Hey, well, well, thank you for that. <laughs> and uh, I give another little voice to quality there. Generally, if Chelsea Green does something, it, it's usually pretty daggone high quality. Yeah, no, they do a great job, particularly with this type of book, you know, with this sort of... Uh, uh, instructional type of, of books. Chelsea Green is really, really, really good. Absolutely. Well, again, Ben, I thank you for uh, being with us today, and uh, I'll send as many people I can your way to your website, and uh, thanks for everything you've shared with us today. Thanks a lot, Jack. I really appreciate it. All right, folks, and with that, it's been Jack Spear going today along with Ben Hewitt, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough for you if they don't. The revolution is you. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Yeah.